welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello, my name is Gary, and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Gary. Uh, I'm going to be reading from page 52 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Hello, my name is Gary. I'm a sexaholic. I'm reading from page 52 of Alcoholics Anonymous, from the chapter We Agnostics. We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. Uh, the list that I read to you, uh, the person who designed the workshop calls uh, the symptoms of a self-centered life. And what we're going to do is, Doreen's going to speak for just a few minutes on how those things showed up in her life and what happened, what her life is like today, how those symptoms have been reversed in her life through working the steps. Okay, I'm Doreen, recovering sexaholic. Hi, Doreen. And uh, I came to this program uh, a little less than nine years ago. Um Boy, every single one of these symptoms was um, true for me. Um, having trouble with my personal relationships. Um, I had um, I had just spent three months as a, a intern on a chemical dependence unit of all places. Um, and while I was doing that, I um, I was in another of the S programs trying to get sober by my own definition. And um, I couldn't figure out why I was having problems. I, I, I didn't want um, the patients to know, you know, about my program. Um, some of the, I, I didn't get the best of, of um what do you call it when you're evaluating? I didn't get the best evaluation at the end of the quarter because the uh, the guy in charge of the chemical dependence unit was aware of the struggles that I was having. Anyway, at the end of the quarter, I had finally hit bottom and um, decided to come into this program. But I definitely had trouble with personal relationships. I definitely couldn't control my emotional nature. Um, I was depressed a lot, 
during that quarter. Um, I wasn't making a living for sure. I wasn't particularly unhappy. I was frustrated, though. And um, I was trying to be of help to other people, but because I was um, in crisis myself, I couldn't be a particularly effective helper. So, anyway, at the end of that quarter, I did hit bottom, and I came into the, the essay program and started working it for all I was worth. Thanks, Doreen. Mm-hmm. My name is Gary. I'm a sexaholic. And, uh, you know, those symptoms were all true of me after six years in the program. Just sitting in a chair like you're sitting in chairs right now. Uh, because I didn't take any action. I guess there, there are two problems. One, I didn't understand the nature of my situation or my circumstances. I didn't understand that I had a disease that would kill me. And on the other hand, I didn't hear or just wasn't open to uh, taking the actions necessary that, to get me out of my situation. Now, I don't know if it was that no one was offering me a solution or I just couldn't hear it. For whatever reason, I wasn't doing anything about my situation. And this describes me perfectly. Except for one thing. I wasn't having trouble with personal relationships because I didn't have any. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I was pretty alone. I, um, there were a few people in the program who cared enough about me to drag me to uh, some meetings where I could get some help. But other than that, um, you know, my family stopped inviting me to things because they knew I wouldn't go. One of my brothers called and he he just pleaded with me, Gary, would you come to this? Then he said, if we did it on a different day, would you go? And I said, just pause. He goes, I guess you wouldn't come, would you? And I, and I didn't realize what I was doing to my family, but I was having trouble with them. You know, if I showed up, I was sarcastic or mean. Um... You know, because I knew what all their problems were. And I felt like I had the freedom to point them out in front of each other. You know, in front of other family members. You know, I couldn't control our emotional natures. Every spring in March or April, I would get very, very depressed. Some of my friends would be afraid for me. You know, and they'd call other people and say, we got to do something for Gary because he's, he's, he's horribly depressed. And I couldn't control my my envy or my my despair just over life, you know, like it's never gonna change, it's gonna it's always gonna be this way. Everybody else is happy, I'm miserable, everybody else has someone, I have nobody. Um I was I was afraid of misery and depression. And couldn't make a living. You know, one of my friends took me aside. He says, Gary, you know, everybody wonders why you have so much talent and you never, you never do anything. You know, I was constantly in fear and, and I was running away from jobs. You know, when I was selling real estate, I was on the verge of getting a broker's license and I left because I thought, well, I can't do that work. Um, 
I lived in South Bend and I went to Notre Dame to see if I could get a master's degree. And I was just on the verge of signing on and I thought, you know, I could never do that work. I, um, I was in another graduate program and I could never finish this language requirement. So I left. And then I got a job with a, a large corporation and I had to memorize a 19 page script. It was single spaced and as soon as I finished it for the first time, the first time I recited it, I thought, you know, I could do that language requirement. I could memorize all those, all those, uh, verbs. And so I, I stayed at that company for a while and I went back to get that degree. And then at the end of the degree, I thought, I can't do this work. And I was always afraid and always, always starting over again. And it was very difficult for me to earn a living. I had a feeling of uselessness because I was useless. I, you know, God couldn't use me for anything of any significance. And I couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. I'd try sometimes, but I couldn't. You know, today... Um, it seems like self-centeredness is slowly, and I, I need to emphasize slowly leaving as, as I work the steps. Um, but it's not something that I just wake up in the morning and go, well, I'm not going to be self-centered Gary today. I'm going to be thinking of others all day long. No, I, I call up people and snivel and whine, and they'll say, Gary, uh, isn't it great to help the newcomer? Or have you helped anyone today? Or are you thinking about anyone but yourself? Or what are you going to do about your problem? Or somewhere in the literature I'll read something. Or I'll say the third step prayer. And I'll get to that part where it says, relieve me of the bondage of self. And I'll re remember that I am truly bound up in myself. And I need to be released from that. And only God can do it. But it seems like in working the steps, that there's some kind of a freedom from self that never came from any other activity. But the personal relationships thing, I, it just seems like reaching out to other people, there's, there's a change in my life. Um, you know, I went to a meeting of another fellowship and I saw a guy from high school there. And he came over to me and and he hugged me and he said, Matt, it's great to see you, Gary. And I, I thought, well, what are you telling me that for? You don't like me. And that was just my perception from 30 years ago. And now, now he wants to see me. And uh, relationships with people that I grew up with are being restored through nothing that, that I've done. It's just that God's chosen to put me in those situations and I'm, I'm not afraid and, uh, I guess I'm not as lost as I used to be. Uh, you know, my relationships with my mother's family has changed. You know, my, my aunt told me on the phone the other day, she said, you know, uh, Gary, we love you. And, uh, this is all a result of working the steps and being open to the 12th step and working with other people. 
controlling my emotional nature, I still can't control my emotional nature. But when I'm headed into a tailspin, I can remember what the literature says about the second step and about the third step. And I also remember about people's experience that when all else fails, nothing will help like working with another sexaholic. That I've had experiences where prayer didn't work, reading a book didn't work, going to a meeting didn't work. Um, and, and when God provided that newcomer to talk to, suddenly my problems didn't seem like they, they were that big a deal. But that misery and depression usually comes from my conviction that God cannot do anything with my situation. When I get to the point where I lose sight of the fact that God truly is who He says He is, that's when depression hits me. So that the second step is crucial for me to have any kind of emotional sobriety. I just, I can't have it unless I really believe that that God can restore me to sanity, that there can be some kind of tranquility from that conviction that God really is who He says He is. Because when I don't understand what's going on around me, and I cannot understand it, I cannot see why something's happening or where it's going to lead, I have to come down on one side or the other of a dilemma that God either is sort of middle of the road. He isn't, he's sort of God or he's sort of not God. He either is or he isn't. And this full of fear thing, um, I was full of fear. And, and what the fourth step taught me was that I can admit that I'm afraid and I can pray that God would remove my fear. I had to call my uncle um, and talk to him about some business things. And I was scared to call him. And I just prayed. I said, God, I'm scared. But would you remove my fear from me and let me call my uncle? And I did, and he was always glad to talk to me. And he, the thing that we did worked out really well for me, for my uncle, and for this guy that I was representing. And in the deal, I came to realize that my aunt and my uncle, this is another one, other than the one I mentioned earlier, they really care about me. And they, you know, they don't think the kinds of things about me that I thought they were thinking about me. But, uh, the fears that I've had lately are the fears of accepting jobs. I, I work in an art gallery. We don't have anybody to hang art. So my boss says, why don't you do it? So I, you know, I say, People call and I say, okay, I'll do it. I go to their house and they've got a, a mirror that's worth five or ten thousand dollars and it's got these fragile little things on it. And, you know, I'm going to, in an earthquake country, I'm going to hang it on the wall. And I'm just waiting for that phone call that says, Gary, the, the mirror fell on the stone floor and it's in five thousand pieces and we, we want to talk to your insurance company to have it repaired. But I go out and do it. You know, I hang stuff up. Um, I drive nails into very, very expensive wooden paneling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, 
I only made one really bad mistake. It was in a lawyer's office. And he was he was sitting right there and he wanted two pictures hung up and I I hung the first one and then I measured about ten times to hang the second one, drove the nail in and I realized I'd driven the nail in exactly halfway between where the two pictures should hang. So once the pictures were up, there's a great big hole in the wall. And so Larry, uh, Larry, I made a mistake. And, you know, before I would have been scared. I just told him, I said, Larry, I made a mistake. He said, don't worry about it, Gary. We're having the painters come in next week. They'll take care of it. I, I put a $10,000 picture in a frame and I scratched it. And I, I scratched some of the image off of it. And, uh, you know, I just went to my boss and I told him, I said, you know, I, I scratched this painting. He said, are you sure you did? Cause maybe it happened to someone. No, I, I did that. And, uh, I told his daughter, who really is my boss, you know, that I did that. And she said, what do you think? We haven't wrecked paintings before. And all these fears I have about what people, how people are going to react to me are just unfounded. But I have to ask God to remove my fear or I won't do anything. I'll just be paralyzed and uh, just stuck. And I can make a living today. You know, I don't pray that I'll get more money. I pray that I'll be responsible with what I have. That uh, I'll make the best use of what I have today. And that there will be something there to give away. Uh, there'll be something to save, and then there'll be some money to live on. And, uh, it's just amazing how, you know, I, I can make a living today. And I think, uh, being of real help to other people, it seems like I can do that. Um, you know, that's my perception. Probably ought to ask somebody else if that's true, but at least that's my perception. But I believe that these, this self-centeredness goes away by working the steps, the second step, the third step, the fourth step, the fifth step. Um, you know, sincerely being at a place where I'll, I'll ask God to remove my defects of character and then going on and making amends to people. Um, you know, I was talking in, in another workshop about making amends to my father. And, uh, you know, there's a very strong self-centered fear behind uh, what I did to my father. And when I made amends to my dad, I realized that, boy, I'm responsible for my life from this point on. And I wasn't afraid that way anymore. And I wasn't blaming him. And I think that's an illustration that all of this is all tied together. There isn't one little element of my life that I've isolated or one action from the program that I've isolated and say, well, I can attribute this to that. But moving through the steps has changed my life. And, uh, specifically in the ways outlined.
in the opposites of these these symptoms of self-centeredness. Do you want to talk some more? Um, during recovering sexaholic. Um, back to the the uh, my hitting bottom after having done this this three three month rotation on chemical dependence unit. Right when I was uh, I was hitting bottom myself with my own addiction. Um, I hit bottom really really hard. I I mean I was really low. Um, I wanted to go into a treatment unit because I, I felt so totally insane, but I, I couldn't afford it. And so I, I did the next best thing, 90 meetings in 90 days, and I, I, um, only felt sane while I was in a meeting. And it actually, I got worse before I got better. Um, I felt literally like I was about six years old when I when I first um, started attending SA meetings. I knew my first meeting that I belonged and that this was the program that I that I needed. And um, so I just I I really was tenacious, and that's about all I all I had uh, my persistence to keep going to meetings and I often would go to one in the morning and one in the evening an AA meeting open AA meeting because I'm not an alcoholic um, and and then a, another meeting in the evening anyway I I found a meeting that was a step writing meeting it became my favorite meeting um, and uh, we would write on a step, you know, for so much, uh, a portion of the meeting, and then share. And I always shared on the step, and, and in God's um, providence, they were on step one when I when I came. And um, so I was able to methodically work through the steps, and... Um, I, I I don't know how to explain this, although I know many of you um, can relate to it. But I I just I kind of I really fell apart. Of course, um, when I went to the meetings, uh, it was the first time in my life that I had I was able to share what really I was on the inside um, and and the actions that I was ashamed of without without feeling like I was just the, you know, scum of the earth. I mean, I, I I was among friends who I knew had the same the same um struggles as me. And so that made it a lot easier. Um I had never found any place that I was comfortable really confessing who I was. And so anyway, I I went through that year and I I progressed in my emotional feelings from feeling like I was five or six years old. I literally felt that way uh, to being, you know, I, I, I remember one night in a meeting I, I shared, well, you know, I don't really feel like a five or six year old anymore. I think like I feel more like I'm 12. And somebody says, boy, you're really aging fast. Has <laughs> it only been a few months? And I I went from feeling like I was six to feeling like I was twelve, and 
anyway, we, I, I cycled through the steps along with the, the group. And, uh, I had a hard time with step three at first and, and the group was really going faster. We, we did a, a step a month in that group. The group was going faster than, than I was as far as, um, my feeling of, of really being in sync with the group. I continued working through the steps at the pace the group was, was at. But I feel, I felt emotionally that I was still at step three for a long time. Um, probably for about the first six months, I felt like I, emotionally, I was still at step three. But I kept going to a meeting every day. I, I made, um, at least three phone calls every day to other people in the program. And, uh, I worked the steps out, outside the meeting and I did a lot of reading. I was um, such an emotional basket case that I couldn't work then. And it was about six months before I, I felt I had the energy to to um, get a part-time job. So anyway, I got clarity working through the steps. Um, I, I got the clarity of, of seeing what my defective coping patterns are and um, after about six months of being in the program I I finally became convinced that God my higher power has my best interest at heart in every area of my life including my sexuality that was my big hang up with step three I wasn't quite convinced at the beginning of, of my program that God cared for me, like it says in step three, we commit our our will and our life to the care of God as we understand him. I wasn't quite convinced about that care of God part. Anyway, um, I, I was able to work that, through that and I became convinced that God cared for me on every level of my life. And then sobriety became much easier. Um, it wasn't the hanging on and having to go to a meeting and making so many. I still went to an, a great deal of meetings and made a great deal of phone calls. But the desperation that I had felt was going away. And I was starting to get some joy in its place. Um, I... I went back after, after I started to feel more stable. I went back and, um, went to the place that I had, had worked, um, oh, it would have been maybe a couple years ago that I had worked a, at a, um, real estate office. And I asked if they could use my help again and I got a part-time job. And, um, so I, I, uh, I did that and I did some other things in the real estate office that were just my my business, not the real estate business, but they allowed me to do them in the office as long as I would be there um, so that I could answer the phones and and um, field people that came in the office. It was a very small office and they didn't have a receptionist or a secretary or anything. So I was kind of providing that service if I could use their office rent-free to run 
my my uh, own business. So um, my income quadrupled that year. I mean, I still wasn't rich, but when I figured out the percentages, uh, <laughs> in one year my income had quadrupled. She's a sales lady. <laughs> anyway, and um, I started getting, you know, that feeling of belonging that that we get in the fellowship. When I gave my step one, that was when that really, really happened. I knew that I belonged. I was accepted no matter. I thought I was. I I thought I was such a weirdo that everybody was gonna think I was just nuts when I gave my step one and um, nobody did I mean maybe they did think that but they thought they were nuts too and so I was I was on the same level of everybody (laughs) anyway giving my step one was uh, um, affirming it was a scary but affirming um, experience for me and Anyway, the, my life just began to get better during the first year. I still, um, after eight years in the program, every one of these symptoms, I still have come up. Um, I, I have fear come up. I have depression come up. But I have tools now. I have tools to, to use to deal with those. I know how to do a fear inventory if I if I'm feeling fearful. I I know to pick up the phone if I um, need to get out of depression. Um, I have the tools. I'm not um, problem free, but I have the tools that are the solution to those problems. So um, thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Doreen. You, you might be asking a question. Um, why would we talk about uh, the symptoms of self or self-centeredness? And uh, there's a lot of talk in the fellowship about shame being the base of the problem or guilt or whatever. But on, on page 62 of the big book, it says selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the sexaholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. And, uh, you know, I, I feel ashamed sometimes because I've done shameful things. I feel guilty sometimes. But uh, a lot of those feelings stem from my own self-centeredness. You know, worried about how I'm coming off to other people. Worried about what I'm going to get or not going to get. But, uh, you know, if God is at the center of my life as a result of having a spiritual experience through working these steps, you know, then in that case, I'm thinking about other people. And the big book warns me, says that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend on the constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. 
You know, it's just that, so what if I feel ashamed? You know, I need to press on and do something for someone else if I want to stay sober today and if I want to recover and if I'm going to believe that God is going to deal with the self-centeredness that's destroyed my life and the lives and hurt the lives of those people around me. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I just want to read one thing from the big book. At the point of... Oh. Neil, do we need to cut it off at 10? Okay. At the um, point of of working step 10, is it 9 or 10? Nine. Step 9. Um, that's where the 12 promises come in the big book. And if I, I'm going to read them. They sound kind of the opposite of this list that we just read. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, we, we do have some time, and, and if anybody would like to make a comment or ask a question, uh, I don't know how you feel about answering questions, because I don't know anything, but Doreen knows quite, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, DJ, right. is that it?
Thanks, DJ. Anybody else? Matt, I've never seen you quiet before. Under under ten minutes, yeah. <laughs> Matt, can you come up? I guess maybe we ought to. Yeah, we should have had him talking. Yeah. I'm Matt Sexaholic. Gosh, um, that was my story. And page fifty-two is the first time I really read something that I really related to. You know, um. Especially the part about depression. And I stopped acting out and all of a sudden, you know, it felt like crap on a daily basis. And I wasn't doing anything about it. So, I guess to be given the steps as a filter for life, you know, seemed indispensable to me. But I just couldn't figure out how are 12 stupid things supposed to, you know, run your life? It wasn't that like brainwashing type of thing? And somebody in the program said, Matt, your brain needs washing. <clears throat> and because it didn't make any sense to me, you know, I had to, later on in a chapter called More About Alcoholism, talks about this guy who's a slipper, and I was a slipper in SA, you know, I didn't come in instantly and get sober. And it says at the end, he said, I had to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. And that's not easy to do. But the moment he made up his mind to go through with the process, he had felt that the obsession had been removed. And so I thought that was my job. Then I'll just do that. And everything that I had, you know, every, I don't know, every facet of my life, I thought, well, maybe I should run it by my sponsor. <laughs> but I, I needed somebody to help me learn to think right. Because my thinking was always through, how am I going to get what I want? Whatever way it was, I must be telling a lie. <laughs> a lie detector. So, anyhow. But uh, anyway, I guess I really like the promises. Because I don't know whether they're the opposite of those or um, I just like getting what I get. So I keep doing what I'm doing. And it makes it really simple. But I still have those same feelings, like Doreen had mentioned. And about, I think I was about 21 years old, and we were at fellowship. And it was a Friday night North Hollywood meeting, and I had felt really young and never what my sponsor called, you know, close to the skin. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I feel like I'm my age for the first time in my life. And I got sober really young. So that was for the first time that I was around people that I related to, that I sort of felt like, you know, I was a full adult. You know, thanks guys, you guys did a wonderful job. Don't tell anybody about that. Thanks, Matt. I think we're going to wrap it up because you, you don't want to miss the talent show. Trust me, trust me, it's uh, it's an experience you wouldn't want to miss. Um, yeah, do you want me to do it or you want to do it? Okay. We're going to finish up by reading a little bit of the third step from How It Works in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then Doreen's going to lead us in the third step prayer. Uh, this is right after the two paragraphs I read before about selfishness and self-centeredness. 
This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of His presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Then it continues, We were now at step three. Many of us said to our Maker as we understood Him, and the, step, the third step prayer follows. So I'd like to close by us joining hands and reciting the third step prayer together. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.